There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 117. Today in the show, I'm joined by the one and only John Dudley, and we're diving into how we can improve our archery accuracy and how to decoy whitetail bucks. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today on the show, I'm joined by John Dudley. He is a champion tournament archer, an outdoor writer, the host of the Knock On TV show and the Knock On podcast, and a serious whitetail nut. And when he gets on the line here with me in a minute, we're going to dive into a couple really fascinating topics. First, given his expertise on archery, we're going to talk about a number of different things related to improving our accuracy with archery tackle. We're going to cover things like dealing with target panic, improving our shot sequence, uh, how to practice better with our bows leading into the season, and lots of stuff along those lines. And then from there, we're going to talk whitetails, specifically how John has had so much success decoying bucks. And that is uh, filled with some very interesting stories and really rock-solid tactics. So long story short, there is a lot of interesting stuff in this episode. But before we get into that, we need to pause briefly to thank our partners at Sitka Gear for their long-standing support of this podcast. And as we do every week, we've got a Sitka story, which today comes from Brad Christian, a member of the marketing team at Sitka. And Brad just joined Sitka earlier this year, and when I spoke with him this summer about why he made that move, a lot of what he said resonated with me. And it seemed like a lot of the reasons he wanted to work for this company were also the same reasons for why I wanted to wear this company's gear and be a part of that tribe. So I thought today we'd just listen to Brad discuss this very topic. It's a great question. Um, you know, Sitka, to me, um, it's about disrupting the status quo. It's about, it's about quality. It's about, it's about um, taking uh, an experience that is the most, one of the most important things to me in my life, which is, you know, bow hunting and, and being in wild places and making those wild places 
significantly better um, through gear. There's a lot of products on the market that are just their dead weight, their gimmicks, their their whatever. I mean, I don't have an emotional connection to them, but with with Sitka gear, I, I, I genuinely, from the bottom of my heart, have an emotional connection to the company because of what it has meant to me uh, before I worked here. You know, um, I remember the first time I ever tried the clothing on, it was just this, I mean, mind blown to me. It's this mix of like, this is going to be amazing slash. I feel like a ninja slash, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, you know, it, it's just uh, on the white tail side. It's just when, when I'm packing my gear up, I'm just, I'm looking at a storm coming and I'm like, I got this. Uh, we're going to do war and I'm going to win, you know, and, and knowing that I can go into the field with the sick year and, and be totally comfortable is super important to me. I mean, that's why I say there's this, this deeper connection because it's genuinely uh, drastically improving my experience and just what the brand stands for. Um, I see every day, um, you know, we talk about fit for use, you know, if a product is not fit for use, um, we don't, we don't put it out. We don't test our products on, on the consumer. We test them in the field and figure out if they're not perfect. And we will, we will scrap a, a project of, you know, spend a bunch of money on something just because it's not perfect. And I just, I know how much time I invest in my hunting. I'm, I'm building a bunch of arrows right now for hunting season. And it's painstaking what I go through in building my arrows because I want to try to remove every little, you know, ounce of, of question that I can. And knowing that my, you know, technical apparel has gone through that same process. It's just, that's what I, I need to know to feel confident and, um, and, and, and good. I couldn't agree more. So if you'd like to enjoy that same kind of connection with your gear and a brand and maybe feel like a ninja once in a while too, check out Sitka's products at SitkaGear.com. And now let's get back to the show and welcome John Dudley onto the podcast. All right. Joining us now is John Dudley. Welcome to the show, John. Hey, buddy. How's it going? It's going well. Uh, although I got to say just, just a second ago offline, I found out that I'm between you and checking your trail camera. So I know you've got good stuff coming up here pretty soon, huh? Oh, yeah. I hope so. I mean, I to be honest, I've been so busy this year, I was really late getting my cameras out. I always, I always like to get them out a little bit later just so that I'm getting velvet pictures, but I'm not, like, putting too much pressure in the area. I don't really, I don't really personally care about getting pictures of bases and then brow tines and stubs. You know, I kind of like to get, get a picture of something in that almost mature phase that's still in velvet. And then obviously start to try to utilize the cameras a little bit for, from a patterning aspect, once they are hard horned leading up to the, the start of the season. So I was a little bit late. I haven't checked my cameras yet, so this is going to be the first time I'm actually seeing what I may or may not be getting to go after this year. Oh man, that is the ultimate like just before this is this is your Christmas Eve right now, isn't it? Just <laughs> dying to know what's <laughs> going to be there. Yeah, yep, in a way it is for sure. Uh, it I, is. I can relate. I uh I was in I live in Michigan. 
and hunt Ohio, Michigan, a bunch of these states here in the Midwest, but I was out in the West for the past two months, so I haven't had been able to check cameras at all. So I'm itching to get down to Ohio here in just a couple of days for same thing as you, first pull of the of the summer. So I can definitely relate to that anticipation. Um, oh yeah, it's it's tough, <laughs> just waiting. No doubt, no doubt. Now, um, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. I was gonna I was gonna say, John, if you could, um, you know. I've actually, I've actually first think I was introduced to you, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, maybe, um, when I heard an interview with you on a podcast way back, I think it was called Bowcast, maybe. Um, and oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 yeah that was like live from the bird or something probably back then. That was before the, the big, um, well now they've changed the name of it. It used to be a different tournament out in Utah, but yeah, those guys were that was very old. That was probably the first podcast in archery. Yeah, I think it was. It was. I remember running on the treadmill, um, working out in the summer and stuff, getting ready for hunting season and all the other things. And I just needed something to listen to, and that was the one thing out there. Um, and so I, you know, started following your work since then, and was reading your articles. And over the years, you're a guy who I've always been really intrigued by both your your skill set and expertise in the archery world, but then also how that translated into your bow hunting success and some of the things you did with, from a whitetail perspective. So I've I've really enjoyed everything you've been putting out there, and I'm I'm excited to share to kind of share your expertise now with our audience. But I guess before we get too far, could you could you give our listeners a little bit of background into who you are and how you got to this point today? Um. Yeah. Sure. So really, I guess, to go back, I started out just being a country boy in Mississippi, started bow hunting um, just before I was 10, and made a lot of mistakes, um, played a lot of sports through high school, and always really tried to bow hunt whenever I could on the weekends, and um, made a lot of mistakes, and I ended up getting hurt right at the beginning of my college career and while I was rehabbing, I was actually just driving down a road and I saw a sign that said archery tournament. So I kind of thought, well, I can hobble along and do that. So I jumped out and with my hunting bow and literally went into my first like local 3d shoot. And I was so poor at it. I I was out of arrows after about 12 or 15 targets and, (laughs) It was the first time that I had ever felt defeat like that, and it just, it you know, it, it really just created this passion to not fail at something. So I went to a local archery shop the next day and just started following around the people that I had seen at the tournament and watched them uh, shoot and started to see target bows and then really just jumped head first into local tournaments, local tournament competitions. And, uh, probably meanwhile, I was working at an archery shop part time and a year and a half later, I was in the pro class, just had kind of discovered that I had a natural talent to compete in archery and, um, started shooting professionally right at the age of 18. And then, during that time, I um, one of the first, well, my first sponsor was Matthews when I was professional, and I met him while helping him at a trade show, and 
got to meet him face to face and get some personal time and about a week after that trade show I got a call from from Matthews they were asking if I would come there to be be a um, a regional sales guy so I went there and was one of the first four salespeople at Matthews and uh, just one thing led to another just all I did was archery from there on out I've worked in the biggest bow companies in the world and been part of companies like Easton for 20 years and um, obviously growing up literally growing up through all of my late teens and all through my 20s in Matt McPherson's test lab just let me learn a lot of stuff by watching and by you know Matt was designing I was really the only um, well myself and Derek Phillips were both at the factory for a few years then Derek moved out of the factory so for probably seven years every time matt built a bow i would be part of taking that bow setting it up shooting it and then giving feedback so i was just able to see the small things with bows that made big differences and just my technical knowledge just like grew like fire just because i was observing and i was i was more or less a test dummy I wasn't an engineer, but I was just seeing all this stuff and seeing how changes affected archery equipment. And then obviously because I'm in a manufacturing facility, I just learned everything about testing, you know, everything down to the fibers in a bowstring or the types of, you know, epoxy in the glass or the types of glass or the type of fiber in limbs. I mean, every single thing I just you know, almost got a college in archery. So uh, during that time, I was still shooting professionally, shot professional 3D for a while, got bored with that, decided to jump into target archery, um, shot professional like target indoor archery and outdoor fetus, you know, 30, 50, 70, 90 meter stuff outdoors. Uh, Then just really got engulfed in um, highly technical field archery feet of field archery with unmarked and marked distances, um, very serious terrain, and, you know, just shot professionally. And the whole time I was doing that, it was all part of my very first, the first reason I pulled off that road at the very beginning was because I thought, oh, that'd be a good way to practice to be better at bow hunting. And so really, bow hunting was always my biggest drive. I competed because I loved it, but I also competed to be a better bow hunter. And it actually, back in the last year that I was on the U.S. team, um, I I walked away from my sabbat simply because they told me that if I, they made everyone on, there's three members for the team that year, and they said, okay, if you guys have to agree that you're going to compete in all four World Cups as well as the World Cup final, which will be at the end of September. And I just said, um, well, even if I'm in the World Cup final, which at the time, based off rankings, I'm, I, I, I would feel pretty confident with that. I said, I would not go. And they're like, <laughs> why and i said it's elk season <laughs> and i that. said and you know whitetail yeah i said i said whitetails open september 15th in wisconsin 
and I normally hunt a week, and then I'm heading out west for elk, so I'm out, and that was it. I mean, that was pretty much my defining moment. I, you know, I, I went back to what I really loved about archery to begin with, and that was being a bow hunter. And so since then, John, right, you've, you've been, been writing quite a bit, and then the knock-on TV show and the knock-on podcast, you're, you're putting a lot out there when it comes to bow hunting and archery-type tactics. I mean, is that what you're doing full-time now? Oh, yeah, yeah. So in, in 2006, I actually left Matthews after just under 10 years and just went out on my own and uh, just started freelancing because, honestly, um, Matthews had made a decision to not allow employees to travel anymore. So I was also given um, an ultimatum between either giving up shooting which I hadn't left shooting at the time. So either I had to leave shooting or I had to leave the company. So I left the company. Um, so I just started working independently and acting as a consultant for different companies in the archery industry and started, I was already writing. I started writing in 1998. Um, I actually had a column for 3d times magazine, which was kind of the first competitive magazine, uh, for competition archery. I had um, a monthly column called The Rookie on Tour, and I pretty much just documented my whole rookie season, like the things that I learned each tournament and the mistakes I made and the friends I made or the you know things, the things I did well or the things I didn't do well, and pretty much documented that whole year, which worked out pretty good because I ended up winning the Rookie of the Year, um, and then... The next year, I met Denise Parker, who had, you know, Denise Parker's um, a great figure for archery, and she had a magazine called Archery Focus. So she called me and said, John, I'd really, really like to have someone that has good technical knowledge that can write some articles that are specific to, like, tuning and form. So I started writing for Archery Focus magazine, and then... Not too long after that, I got a call from uh, Chris White, who is a really good shooter from England. Chris White's dad had a, a major archery publication called Bow International that he had just started in England. And he said, can you write some technical articles for me? So I said, yeah. And then within that same year, the next UK magazine, The Glade, called me. And then, then Bogan Sport called me. Um, then Tier Arc called me, and before I knew it, I was writing for nine different languages, um, literally writing writing articles in 15 countries and nine wow. languages. And I I publish about 250 pages a year. People don't know that, but I do. Jeez. Yep. So and a lot of it I can't. A lot of it I don't have rights to actually put on my websites for people to see for free, which is kind of unfortunate. But yeah, I've got articles written in Slovenian, Croatian, um, Russian. I mean, they're all over the place. It's really, really cool. Um, and then obviously I started the company Knock On really as a way, I really wanted a brand. Uh, one, I've always filmed my own hunts. I've filmed my own hunts since I started at Matthews. I mean, I've got hunts that I filmed uh, 
on the old big VHS tapes, and I've always self-filmed or filmed with a buddy. And I wanted to start a show that wasn't, I mean, I would have the products that I personally like, but I really wanted to start a brand that wasn't specific to like Hoyt or specific to Matthews or Bowtech. Like I didn't want to corner myself that way. I wanted an, I wanted a brand that was for all archers, whether they're hunters, whether they're target archers, it, you know, whether they're new, whether they're advanced, it doesn't matter. And I really just wanted to show that allowed me to just educate and really just bring to life what I write about. And at first, the network, they were really, they were like, okay, listen, you need to have maybe three minutes tops about this. And that's, you know, that's about it. You know, people aren't going to tolerate much more than three minutes about talking about stuff. And I was like, no, I think, you know, I think this is really what, what people want. I said, because Lee and Tiffany kill awesome bucks, you know what I mean? Uh, Michael Waddell kills, all, you know, those people kill great animals all the time. Like, if you want to see something big die, that's that's what you that's what you watch. But, you know, I hunt on a very, very limited budget. My budget's probably... A lot of these hunts that I see people going on it would be my entire year's budget. Like I said, I film myself. I film with equipment that the average guy can buy. Um, I produce and edit myself. I, I have my finish editing done with a good friend of mine that I met in archery that now is pretty much my kind of my my media manager, so to speak. And then my wife Sharon pretty much supports everything on the the business side of knock on, but it's just an information highway. And now, um, people have, have really shown that the hunts are great, but learning is what it's all about. And that's just, you know, six years later into my show, I'm now at three informational segments during the show with, you know, much less hunting. My hunts are much more compressed. You know, I don't have b-roll a leave blowing or a grunt tube on my pocket or you know i don't fill time with that i fill time with education yeah so go ahead i was gonna say i think one of the things that i've enjoyed about both your show and your articles too is that it's it's digestible you know there there's if, to your point, first off, most media out there, whether it is articles or TV shows, most of it is just focused on you know the big animal getting killed. So then you've got a pretty small segment then that's actually really educational. Even smaller of that that's focused on you know technical stuff related to archery and everything like that. And then even a smaller number of the, of those types of articles and things are actually like understandable by like the average guy or girl who maybe isn't an expert in this yet. And what I've always been impressed by with your writing and your videos and, and anytime I hear you talking about this type of stuff is that you're able to communicate in a way that I think anyone can kind of wrap their head around and then like apply to their own situation. Um, so that's something that I've, that I've found that you uniquely do really well that I'm glad you're able to do in the TV show, even though that's different than maybe the norm for the network, um, because there's really a need for that. I mean, I think you, you've probably seen it too. There, there's not a whole lot of, of, while there's lots of information out there, quality education that's digestible i think is increasingly rare yep yeah well you know what's funny is for the longest time i struggled 
finding editors that wouldn't change my way of writing um, because a lot of, especially someone that's um, a very schooled and educated um, editorial person or has a degree in editorial, you know, I'm like first-year college-type communication. You know, I'm not a thesaurus. Um, you know, I would probably say I saw a lot of bucks and say, instead of saying there was a plethora, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, and most of, well, in fact, everything of what I've learned, I've experienced. So it's easy for me to talk about target panic because I've had it, I've beat it, I've come back from it, you know, and I've, and I also coach some of the best you know some of the best archers and teams in the world um so from a coaching aspect i'm able to one i'm able to deliver a message that i think people can somewhat grasp mainly because i know what they're feeling a lot of times when i watch people shoot i can see by how their demeanor is what their brain is thinking or maybe some of the anxieties or anticipation that they're feeling. And because I'm an athlete and I really, I've been, I've been blessed to be able to do a lot of things well. So if I'm working with someone, I try to relate it to something that may not just be archery. And I'll just use, for example, um, for the last six months or so I've been working with Joe Rogan and because I'm kind of a big advocate in how the body functions and meditation and I also have a small martial arts background and I'm a fan of martial arts there's certain things that that I could tell Joe in an archery way that he didn't really he knew what I was trying to say but he didn't grasp it but then I would say, okay, you know, it's like it's like when you're doing um, forms competition in martial arts. It's a it's a movement. It's a flow. It has to be systematic. You can't. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, okay, I get I get it. So some people need to have a relation to something that they might do outside of archery, and I feel like. I'm good at that just because I really, I personally like to try a lot of different things. So I might be able to, you know, and it's just going out there, but I might be able to say, well, have you ever bungee jumped before? Because it's kind of like, you know, when your strings are stretching out and then they do what's called a rebound, you know, and then people are like, oh, yeah, okay. You know, it's it's easy to get people to understand if you're able to give an analogy that's maybe not specific to the sport. Definitely makes sense. Easy to make it a little more relatable. So I want to I want to kind of rewind to something you talked about a little while ago when you're mentioning some of your background at Matthews and when you're able to work, you know, pretty closely with with the team that's actually developing this kind of stuff. I think one of the things that a lot of bow hunters today are faced with is just kind of almost a paralyzing number of choices when it comes to gear. I mean, there's so many different bows, so many different accessories. I mean, you could just walk down aisles in Cabela's or Bass Pro and just be shocked and overwhelmed. What's what? 
given your experience with so many of these different types of products and seeing what really matters in the testing facility, what details are actually the most important when it comes to some of these pieces of gear as bow hunters? I mean, when, when I'm looking at a bow, is brace height really that important? Or when I'm looking at my release, you know, do I really need to be paying attention to you know, how adjustable the caliber, caliper is or something like that? I mean, what are the details in a couple of these maybe most important items you can think of that really are worth paying real close attention to? Yeah, well, you know, I worked for, and I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate that I, that I worked for Matthews for a long time, but I'm also equally as fortunate that I've worked for Hoyt for actually, well, next month it'll be longer. Um, and there's a real, there's a real difference in the two philosophies because at, at Matthews, Matt was the designer and the creator and and really the design and creation stopped there if you know if it was his idea it got implemented um if it wasn't most of the time it, you know it it was Matt's ideas or that or or probably wasn't going to come to life so whereas at Hoyt it's an entire engineering team that is comprised of some of the most knowledgeable and technical minds that I've ever been around. And if I've ever, if I'm ever stumped on something, I have people there that I know specialize in certain things that will give me a better understanding of what I'm finding. And it's just a real different, there were two really different ways of, of looking through it. So at, at Hoyt, you know, they have people that really specialize in materials. So, you know, even if, even if, um, you know, at, at Matthews, even if we really wanted to go down, say, the road of carbon, because there's really not engineers there with full degrees in that type of material, I don't know if it would have progressed the way that it has with Hoyt. Whereas with Hoyt, and I can tell you as well, what I really like is that the engineers are, almost all of them are hunters that hunt one of the toughest areas there are up on the Wasatch. I mean, that's a very, that is a very demanding hunt. Those guys that leave work, you know, they'll, they'll hike thousands of feet for an afternoon hunt and chase muleys up there and elk and those same guys will be in Vegas. Those same guys will be in Reading. Those same guys will be on World Cup teams. And they just have a real appreciation of target accuracy and also the dependability for traveling versus what we also need in the field for durability. So for me on a bow, what I really look for is I really like to find a bow that has minimal flex and also has, I do believe that brace height is important. I personally don't like to go much under a seven inch brace height ever. Um, I feel that a huge part of accuracy with any compound bow comes from having a proper string angle that allows your head to be in a vertical position where the string can be at the tip of your nose and that the peep sight is not overly far from your from your eye. I feel like the further you take your peep from your eye, the 
the worse off your accuracy will get. And I've experienced that. You know, we've had, there was, I've been through a lot of generations of design with bows that came to the market that were much, much, much different before they came to the market. And a lot of times brace height was a factor because obviously when it comes to at least our industry, marketing is everything. So if Hoyt's got a bow that's shooting 330 and they put it out in October, then obviously Matthews is going to want to have a bow that's shooting 331 come November. And, you know, what's funny is eccentrics and cam designs have really, they've really plateaued. They're about as efficient as you can possibly get. So speed now, it really comes from brace height or ultimately the power stroke on the arrow. So how long that string is actually pushing the arrow for before it leaves and that's why, like, you see a lot of these crossbows that are much faster now, but they're also shooting on AR rails that have much more power stroke than they've ever had in the past, too. You know, so you're typically, with a compound bow, for every inch of draw length, you're going to get about eight pounds more speed. So, um, you know, a lot of companies played with that, too, until the ATA stepped in and drew the line of this is hundred percent the requirement if you're going to advertise speed this is how we measure draw length up to before that point i think it was plus or minus an inch and three quarters that companies could actually fudge so like some of the very first um some of the very first like black knight bows and uh, Botex, um kevin struthers was was pretty notorious for sending out bows that were well over an inch and a half beyond true draw length measurement and you would get a bow that was shooting 340 when if it's got if it's drawing 31 and a half inches of true draw well if you take that 12 to 13 feet per second off you're back down to a bow that shoots 327 so and then the other thing too is you know you take a bow say you're comparing it to um, a Hoyt with a seven inch brace height that's that and Hoyt is notoriously they were the ones that fought for the for the standardized draw length measurement because they were always so true on their draw length um, they really want to see comparison for like apples to apples so if you're if you've got a bow that's a seven inch brace height and it and you know it's shooting and a, and a thirty inch bow is shooting three thirty well. Of course, if you're going to compare it to um, even even another bow, like even a bow within the same category or within the same brand, like a turbo model, if it's got an inch shorter brace height, well, it's going to automatically be eight foot per second faster. Now, there's a lot that goes into play for cam design. Um, certainly, Hoyt or Matthews or Bowtech or anybody else, they could make bows that are pushing the limits for speed with, you know, having a cam that feels very aggressive to hold back, like, for example, like a PSE Omen or something. That's not something that a, a hunter is really going to feel comfortable drawing back and holding back at full draw. Now, is it screaming fast? Yeah, it'll be screaming fast, but accuracy tends to, to fall apart. I'm just, when it comes to a bow, 
I like a bow that allows people to have a, a, a respectable brace height, which in my opinion is seven inches, is a great number. It allows you to have good clearance of your sleeve, especially if you have some bulkier clothes on as a bow hunter. Um, and then also, for the most part, unless you're shooting a very, very short axle, axle bow, with a 7-inch brace height and a bow, like, for example, mine, I'm shooting a 34-inch axle, axle bow. Um, I've got a 31-inch draw, and with a 7-inch brace height bow, I feel totally comfortable at full draw. The peep's close enough to my eye. I have really, really good accuracy. Now, if you start buying a model that that peeps further from your eye or you're starting to hit your arm on occasion, then automatically you're, you're going the wrong direction. And the other thing, too, is buying a bow that you can pick off the shelf, raise your bow arm straight up, point it at a target, and then with only your drawing arm, be able to pull that string back to your face until you get to full draw. If you're having to lean back or hit your hips or push and pull or lift the bow above your shoulder to draw it back, then you're also either pulling a cam design that's too aggressive for you um, or you're pulling too much draw weight. I think those those things specifically on a, on a compound bow are really going to help improve your accuracy. And it sounds like that's something that, well, not that it sounds like, it's just obvious. So many people today want that high speed, so they crank up their pound draw because they they want those numbers they they think that that matters so much to you know given like you said the marketing we see today everyone's talking about super fast bows and how great that is but to your point in the end if that's going to if that's going to damage your accuracy it doesn't really matter a whole lot but another thing that I think a lot of people struggle with is draw length can you talk a little bit about the possible risks of stretching that draw length too far cuz i hear a lot about how that can impact our accuracy too yeah, so with draw length, you really want to have, you want to be able to maintain um, proper posture. And, you know, the basis to any sport is uh, the proper foundation, the proper technique. With archery, it's a T formation. So when I look at an archer perfectly from the side, I'm really looking for someone that has their feet directly under their hips, their hips under their shoulders, and then when they're at full draw, I'm looking for their shoulders, um, front elbow, front wrist to be in an even line. Now, as soon as you start to overdraw, then what will happen is you'll have to start leaning back, um, which, you know, your, your T will start to bend backwards away from the target, or you'll start to overdraw, and what you'll find is the rear elbow starts to come down below the shoulder in order to get the release hand um, back to an anchor position, which for a lot of people, they end up like putting their thumb behind their neck or something like that. Um, You really want to maintain that T formation, and you also want to have your head in a perfectly erect position and you want to just imagine that someone is holding one little hair on the top of your head and that you're just barely pivoting your head towards the target um, in order to look at it. You don't want to have to take your head forward to the string because if you're doing that, you're immediately going to be falling into improper form. And, you know, really with draw length, there's... um, there's a 
couple different ways to measure it. Um, I actually did. I'm pretty sure if you look at the Knock on Archery YouTube channel, um, I did one specific to measuring draw length. I'm just kind of looking it up here. I just did a quick search. Yep, so if you do a Google search or a YouTube search for <clears throat> proper draw length with John Dudley of Knock On, uh, it's on the Knock On Archery. Um, I'll show you that T formation and also how to properly measure yourself. And then if you watch that on my YouTube channel, right beneath that is actually um, another video called NRTR5, which is the Knocked and Ready to Rock segment that I did on bow building. And um, number five was how to address, adjust your draw length. So you would literally be able to um, see how to measure yourself properly and then also be able to see how to adjust your bow really with those two videos alone. That's perfect. I'll make sure to link to those in the blog post for this one. Um, I'm sure that that's helpful to be able to actually see that, you know, hearing is one thing, but actually seeing someone doing some of these things and visually indicating what's what, that that's super helpful. So thanks for, for calling those out. Now, in addition to issues of draw length or draw weight, um, what are a couple of the other most common mistakes that you're seeing bow hunters making um, that are impacting their accuracy? I know there's a lot, um, but could you tackle a couple more that you think most of our listeners need to make sure that they are double-checking and making sure they're not doing these things? Um, for sure, drawing too much weight and then um, drawing probably overdrawing the bow, I think, for sure, are all certainly things that are going to affect that big time. Um, you really need to follow those steps that I just talked about, and they're going to greatly help your accuracy for sure. Um, and the other thing, too, is really striving to have a surprise shot and you know really focus on your ability to hold your pin on the target and actually cover the bullseye while you're slowly um, squeezing or pulling through that release aid until you have a completely surprise shot. If you can do that, then you're going to be leaps and bounds ahead of people. Now, most people today, they're unfortunately, they're at the mercy of their their local dealers who sometimes are trying to just sell a bow that's on the rack and it may not fit them the right way. And if you don't know going in what type of fit you should have, then you're pretty much at their mercy. So overdrawing is very common. Also, people anchoring with an anchor position that's too low. Um, I'm not a big fan of thumb behind the neck because what happens is when you have your thumb behind your neck, oftentimes your string has to be further on your face so you'll see that the string is kind of more on the side of your nose it comes um, as it comes to its full draw position the triangle is actually past the corner of your mouth and then because your thumb is behind your neck um, your your hand is actually lower on your body rather than having it up more on the side of your face and you put that that arrow shaft 
in what I call a danger zone of the face, and that's along the chin line. If you have the shaft of the arrow along your chin line, then any type of head movement that you make, especially if you turn your head towards the right, which a lot of people, the longer they're the longer they're at full draw, they slowly start to turn their head to the right. And that's mainly because when you're standing facing a target, you know, your your feet are parallel and they're you know, you're literally looking over your left shoulder. So the longer you're at full draw, your head naturally just starts to straighten to look, you know, directly in front of your body. So as your head straightens, it's actually pushing on the back of that arrow shaft, and you'll just start to get um, really poor arrow flight and very erratic results because of your chin pressure. So I think if people work on those things, you're going to be in really, really good shape. One of the things you mentioned there, you know, getting that surprise release. I feel like this is something that we hear about all the time. Like, it's one of those, like, yeah, I'm supposed to do a surprise release. But so many people I talk to, it's one of those situations that everyone knows you need a surprise release. But I feel like most of the people, even if they know that, they're still not really doing it. Myself included sometimes. I still sometimes struggle with that. How how do you help someone take that and actually apply it in real life? Someone who struggles with target panic or punching punching the trigger how can you, I mean, it's, it's a lot easier to talk the talk than to walk it. How can you fix that in someone? Well, it's, it's nothing that's going to happen quickly. I mean, that I can tell you. Um, a lot of people want to try to rush through it, and that's when things start to get frustrating. Um, it's really a baby step process. You have to really focus on one thing at a time and um, you really have to start to eliminate all these little demons that have conjured up over normally a vast amount of time so you know I when I'm working with people that have target panic that process is often a two or three week process and a lot of times even people that understand that what they need to do to make a really good shot, they end up trying to quickly go back towards their old style of shooting or, or, you know, especially if they put themselves in any type of a pressure situation too fast, they'll jump on, um, they'll jump on the trigger pretty quick again. You know, I think it's critical that people try to really get their mindset and dedication to knowing that this is a that this is not something that just changes overnight it's going to take work and you also need to try to do it during a time that you know you're not um for example there was a guy that i was working with here locally um and he wasn't like a full-time student but he just said i've got target panic do you think you could help me so i showed him a few things and i said all i want you to work on is this that's it it's going to be tedious, but this is what I want you to work on. And I gave him a few things. And about three or four days later, I went to the archery range, and he's in there shooting, bouncing, you know, like ping pong balls on a vacuum cleaner with another guy at the range. And it's like, okay, well, that was a waste of my time because if you're going to 
go and try to do novelty shoots that make you shoot at like swinging objects or moving objects, all these types of things are going to incorporate you to make a shot happen, which ideally the best, you know, and it's proven the best target archers in the world are the ones that let shots happen. Um, Even the best archers in the world, um, for example, Mike Schulster is from the Netherlands. He shot um, the first ever perfect uh, 600, you know, indoor round, a world record that'll never be broken. And he shot that two years ago. Well, a year later, he's at Vegas, he's in the shoot-off, and people are expecting him to win. And he literally, you know, he's on camera, the camera's on him, it's zoomed in. He pulls back and just does this huge punch-the-trigger thing. Um, And so it, it just goes to show you that those moments, can bring the worst out of anybody. So if you're trying to overcome that, you have to mentally tell yourself, okay, I'm going to focus on, I'm going to stay close. I'm going to keep the targets big. I'm, my focus is going to be on the execution of this release and continuing to slowly pull and squeeze through this release until the, until the release goes off without me knowing Um, And then also having less value on score and less value on how you're actually grouping if you're trying to overcome target panic. Um, When I'm shooting with students and we're working on these types of things, I'll sit there and shoot with them and never even look down the range because... You know, they're like, oh, that one's, that one's a little bit out, sorry. And I just tell them, listen, I'm, I have no care whatsoever where these arrows are going. Because if you can't execute a shot right here with me looking directly at you, like I'm judging your shot based off your execution within your three-foot box. I'm not judging your shot based on the fact, you know, if you shoot a 600 round but I'm watching you punch the trigger – 10 out of, you know, 60 times, then it's not impressive to me. I mean, I could I could go watch a I could watch a world-class archer right now that would go and shoot four perfect days in Vegas, and if he's punching the trigger, I would probably turn the channel after watching the third or fourth shot. It's just it's nothing that I want to ingrain or embed in my memory bank. You know, I just think that I've proven and my students have proven that being able to pull back, put your pin on the target, and then manipulate a release or pull through the shot or slowly squeeze a release until it just goes off, you'll put way more arrows in the middle. Even if your front pin is floating around, then if you're just trying to freeze perfectly still on the target and then punch the trigger or make it happen do you have like a specific shot sequence or thought process that you're going through as you go through this whole sequence of events yeah i i coach a systematic routine that pretty much starts from the ground and then flows up towards the target um it's a step-by-step routine that pretty much puts Um, certain aspects of my shot sequence in check um, 
and it's almost like a checklist, but it's very it's minimal in what you're actually thinking about. A lot of people um, they make a shot routine that's like load arrow, um, grab release, put arrow on you know put arrow on rest. You know, and it's like there's <laughs> almost so many steps to where I've already forgot what we're even doing by the time you get the bow up to the target. You really need to focus on what matters, and that's, for me, it's my stance, my grip, my shoulder position, my anchor, my peep, and then engaging the trigger and pulling through. If I can do that, then my shots do and go where they need to go. If I, if I change any of those five aspects of my shot routine, it immediately has an effect on my form and on my posture. And really, posture and bone alignment are critical to making good shots go off easy, or if your posture is incorrect, your, your um, bad shots are going to really be the hardest ones to get to happen. You know, I've just found that when you're doing everything right and you're in perfect posture without even knowing it, you pull back, you get your pin on the target, and you just start to think about activating or getting your finger by the trigger, and all of a sudden, it goes off, and you're like, whoa. And then you kind of look down there, and the arrow's right in the middle. That's what a good shot should be. <laughs> a good shot should be should require the least amount of effort, the least amount of energy, because you're utilizing bone structure, alignment, and rhythm for the shot versus if you have to push and pull and you're hitched at the waist and you're trying to dig that thumb behind your neck and you're aiming and your pin sitting still under the target but you can't get it on the target and you're sitting there just holding like a rock and your bow creeps forward and you jerk it back again and then you sit there and then finally you lift up and punch the trigger. I mean... That is an incredible amount of work to get a bow shot. You know, you're just, you're just, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And, and likely a, a really crappy arrow flight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. So that's, I mean, that's the things that you need to focus on is having that posture, uh, measuring that draw length properly, and having a bow fit that's proper to you. Um, and really putting all those little puzzle pieces together and, and really going after making good shots be the easy ones. Yeah. Now, you know, with, with so many people ramping up now towards hunting seasons with openers in a few weeks or a month, month and a half, something like that, how do you recommend people go about their final weeks of practice? You know, hopefully people have been shooting all year or at least for a while now, but one way or the other, how should most people handle these final three weeks, four weeks, five weeks? Are you just practicing normally like you do all year, or do you have something that switches as you get closer to actually getting out there? Well, I do what I call selective cycling. And what that is, is I like to focus on different aspects of my shooting throughout the year. And certainly right now, I've got way more emphasis on uh, 
um, making sure that I've got 12 arrows that are built perfectly and match perfectly. And I'm really focused on making sure my broadheads are, are um, sighted in properly and that my, my hunting bow is really focused on shooting with intention of having um, as accurate of broadheads as I possibly can versus um, you know, a month or a month ago, I had a single pin sight on my bow. I was just focused on, um, getting high numbers of reps and just going out and shooting. Um, I think for like, for me, most of June, um, I shot right at about, I think 300 arrows a day was, was my average. Um, and I just really focused on shooting like six arrows at a time and, you know, I, fo- I probably shot, I think I, I didn't shoot every day because I think I shot just somewhere around 8,000 arrows um, for for June. But it was really a month focused on repetition and just building my stamina and shooting a lot of arrows and just getting a lot of practice in. And then now as I'm getting closer to season, I kind of want my my subconscious um, to be able to go through the motions of making a good shot. I don't want to feel sore and all that from, from pulling my bow. And, um, and now I'm just really focused on spending a lot of my practice time, just making fine tweaks on my equipment or building, you know, building new arrows when I have time. And like I said, just shooting my fixed pin sights and, and really focusing, you know, I'll go out and I'll shoot, four to six arrows but i'm not shooting them at the same spot you know i'll 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 just kind of go right down my pins i'll shoot one at 20 one at 30 one at 40 one at 50 one at 60 you know and i I really like to practice a lot on animals on 3d targets um come june and or july and august um but like in the middle of the the winter or during the downtime, you know, that's a great time for people to focus on execution with like, uh, like blank bail shooting or just shooting up close. You know, even if you can just shoot five or 10 yards in the house, uh, just focus on having a big target that's up close where you're not really aiming at any spot. You're just trying to go through the feel of, you know, making a shot with a surprise release, um, you know, and then once outdoors, you know, once it gets nice enough to be outdoors, I like to start just shooting at some bigger bullseyes, some like field faces, and just kind of working my way into getting used to being outside and starting to shoot a little bit longer distances, and, you know, I just kind of build on it. I don't like to just do the same thing all the time. Each month I try to say, okay, I'm going to focus on numbers, or I'm going to focus on one arrow at each target. You know, I'm going to just empty my quiver. I'm going to shoot one arrow at this target, one arrow at this target, one arrow at this target, and just focus on being able to make good shots each and every shot. Makes sense. That's It's easier said than done, though, in a lot of ways. And you mentioned, specifically, I'm curious about when you talked about trying to make that happen, make each shot count when you've got those broadheads on there. That's a big shift for a lot of guys and girls, I think, is once you put a broadhead on, things in many cases change. How do you go about getting that tuned in just before or, you know, whenever it is that you start practicing with broadheads? 
how do you make that shift from field tips to broadheads and make sure you're tuned in but not have to change things so much from what you've been practicing with the rest of the year? Well, broadheads are funny, and oftentimes they're not, you know, they'll advertise them. A lot of people say field point accurate, and it's just that's really not the case. Most of them are not field point accurate. Um, They, a lot of, and, and that's kind of a padded statement, too, because some of them are quote-unquote field point accurate because you can get broadheads to group just as good as field points, just not in the same place as a field point. And, gotcha. you know, so for me, that is really important. If I can get, if my broadheads are grouping as good as my field points, then I'm okay with that. I'll cite in for that. Now, if they're planing, meaning, you know, they're shooting perfectly center at 20 and then they're, you know, eight inches left at 40 and then, you know, then I go out to 70 and they're 15 inches left, well, then that's an issue for me. You know, I, I, I don't want to move my sight every single distance. But if I'm shooting, you know, for example, I had this question today. Someone had sent a question in for my podcast, and they were talking about how with their fixed-blade broadheads, they were shooting really, really close to their field points until about 60 yards. Then they really started to hit much lower. And the reason being is it's extra drag. You know, there's blades on there. So the more drag you have, the faster that arrow is going to start slowing down compared to field point. So you really have to make sure you are sighting in uh, for broadheads, even if you have the best flying or best grouping mechanical head. Um, I personally really like Rage Hypodermics, and they're a very good flying head, but even a Rage Hypodermic hits lower than my field point at 100 yards because there is more blade, you know, there's more drawing air and, you know, sucking air around that as it's flying through uh, those hundred yards. So, you know, you have to, you can't be too frustrated because you do have to do a little homework when it comes to broadheads. Too, Too few people actually buy an extra pack of broadheads and then go out and, and see for themselves where they hit. And that's, you know, ethics-wise, we really need to make sure we're doing that as bow hunters. Um, but if a bow is, if it's grouping as good with broadheads as it is with field points, then I'm okay with it. I'll just sight in for where my broadheads hit, and I can tell you, every broadhead is going to have a little bit different flight characteristic. I personally like to shoot some of the shorter, more compact fixed blade heads, I just feel like they fly really well. Um, like I shoot a, a muzzy trocar, flies awesome. Um, I know that like a Grizz Trick or a Solid or a G5 Striker, um, you know, all these are heads that are short, compact, they've got good designs, and they fly really well. Um, but, you know, again, when it comes to a mechanical not all mechanicals are made the same. And another thing you got to think about too is the longer 
that mechanical, a lot of mechanical heads have a very long ferrule. Some are getting really long, um, especially ones that now are kind of have two different types of blades on them. The longer the ferrule, the more that that will start to affect how your arrow is flexing. It'll start to affect the spine because, you know, you're taking weight further out towards the end of that object that is flexing in a paradox. So, you know, I've just found that keeping a head that is as close to the length of my field point or my practice point is really, really critical. The broadhead thing, I think, is something that, well, obviously it's something that people debate about all the time. There's so much, you know, back and forth between fixed blade or mechanical, this weight or that weight, et cetera, et cetera. For someone who's relatively new to bow hunting, who maybe hasn't been able to dive into this deep and look at all the nuance, what would you recommend as, like, the safe bet? Like, for your new bow hunting buddy, for the average deer hunter, what you know, if you had to pick just one that's a safe bet for the average new bow hunter, what would you say is the safest bet? Just to make it a simple, simple for this person, what would you say? Well, I just know for me and for me and my family, and you know, I've got I've got a son and I've got a wife, and I try every kind of broadhead on the market. But when it comes to a broadhead that I can screw on, that's sharp, that penetrates good with low poundage to high poundage. And also um, one that has very sharp blades out of the pack and is fairly compact. Um, you know, right now I'm I'm shooting on my setup. If I shoot a fixed blade head, I'm shooting a Muzzy Trocar. If I'm shooting mechanical, I'm shooting a, a Rage Hypodermic or that Rage Hypodermic Plus P, which is a half inch less cutting diameter than the original Rage Hypodermic. Um, so it has, and, it, and the blade angle is a little, it's not as steep. So it's actually better for penetration on, say, a bigger animal like moose or elk. And those are two that are just, they're foolproof, they work. Are there other heads that fly like that in different categories? There are. Um, but, you know, if you're going to make me pick one of each, I'm just going to tell you, those are the two that I'm shooting, and I could shoot any brand I wanted. Well, I like your answer, John, because I shoot a Trocar too, so thanks for validating me. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Now, yep. here's the one question that I have about your answer there. Why would you shoot one or the other? Is it like certain animals you're going to shoot the expandable, certain animals you're going to shoot the fixed, or is it just something that you like to try both and and test out the two different things, or when would you pick the Rage versus the Trocar in your own hunting situations? Um, I personally, I just really am a favor of the Rage. I'm a, I'm a favor of, and I should, I'm a big favor of the hypodermic. I mean, if I'm going to pinpoint it um, and be honest, the hypodermic is, I've, I've probably. I've probably taken 20 or more animals in the last few years with that head. Um, and I can tell you that I just personally, the only reason I would shoot a fixed blade head is if that I'm, if I'm really worrying about hitting dense bone mass, um, really solid bone mass, just because the blades 
slide backwards, so they have to travel an inch before they're fully deployed. Um, a lot of those shorter, more compact heads, like that trocar, I mean, that's going to that's gonna bust some stuff. But the thing is, if I'm going to hit that main front arm on an elk or on, I mean, or, or on something really big, you're really talking about maybe 5 to 8% of the area of that animal, you know, your likelihood of hitting it, you know, it's like probably only 8, you know, 5 or 8% of the size. Um, anywhere other than that 5 or 8%, I would way rather have a large cutting expandable getting in there and causing more damage because even a poor shot, you're going to have a better opportunity than just punching an inch and an eighth or an inch and a quarter fixed blade head through there. Now, if the arrow lodges in and it's stuck in there, and as the animal's moving, it's continually working, um, then in that case, a fixed blade can be better because the mechanical will start to shut. So there's, there's so many... You know, you we could start a discussion or a debate on broadheads, and we could still be talking about it this time next year. <laughs> it's yeah. just one of those deals that keeps going. I personally, um, I just, I kind of switch off. You know, I switch around. There's just times where maybe I don't want to go with the mechanical, and it's certainly if you're shooting lower poundage, a lot of people now are starting to shoot around 60 pounds. Um, I, all those 60 pounds is enough if you're, you know, behind the shoulder and in a proper spot. But I can just say that if I was, if I was shooting 60 pounds myself, um, I would probably be shooting a fixed blade broadhead because, you know, with a, 420 green arrow or something like that at you know 60 to 65 pounds you know you're probably going to be shooting um somewhere around the mid 60s or something for kinetic energy depending on your arrow weight and that's just a really good um a really good level to to have a fixed blade head that's kind of a perfect situation or for example um, my wife and my son um, they both shoot fixed blade heads because they both shoot, um, one shoots 40 pounds, one shoots 45 pounds. So they just need that fixed blade head that's kind of cutting sooner and going in. Um, it just seems like the penetration and having that immediate cut or if it's lodged in there halfway, um, it's, it's still doing work for you and, they've just had great success with that. Whereas someone that's shooting 70 or 70 to 80 pounds, a big mechanical is going to have a lot of advantages for sure. Especially when you get to higher speeds, uh, it's just going to be important that you have something that has better ballistic characteristics um, for better aero flight at, at a higher speed, so to speak. All right, well, we are about to shift gears away from talking archery and over to talking whitetails. But before we do that, speaking of whitetails, we need to thank our partners at the Whitetail Institute of North America for supporting this podcast. And if you're listening to this right now at the beginning of September, 
there is possibly still time for you to get a food plot in the ground. And if that's something you're trying to do, annuals are probably what you want to be planting. So to help us better understand what annuals are and how you can use them, here's Whitetail Institute employee John Cooner. Right. Uh, annuals are probably the, the, most, uh, the most diverse in terms of what you can do with them. Uh, if you have a smaller property, some folks will plant perennials, some folks will plant just annuals, and you can really do well uh, on just annual plantings, especially on smaller properties. Uh, the annuals tend to grow, and this is just a big macro statement. They're not all like this, but most annual deer forages will grow more quickly because they're designed rather than uh, designed to last for multiple years. They just spend everything they have during the uh, the period uh, for which they're designed to be planted. Uh, that could be spring and summer for antler growth, and you've got fall fall ones that you could put in the fall that will be there. Uh, some well, some components will run probably into the following summer, uh, but they're really designed to just hammer that certain time of year, and and uh, that that could be early fall through late hunting season. In another case, it could be early fall through winter, and another one early fall and then well into the spring, and probably has something left uh, in the summer. So they are, to answer your question, they're a great way to target a specific time of year when you're trying to deliver either attraction or nutrition or both to the deer. So for me up here in Michigan, right now is one of the very best times to plant one of my favorite annuals, Whitetail Institute's variation of oats, which I just recently got in the ground here on my main Michigan property. So if you'd like to try to get a last-minute food plot in or learn more about Whitetail Institute's food plot options, you can visit whitetailinstitute.com. And now, back to the show. Yeah. Like you said, it's one of those topics that we could, we could go around in circles and talk about for hours and hours and hours, but that's definitely helpful. And I think um, those two options there, the hypodermic or the trocar, are great places to start for someone who's just starting to wrap their head around this whole topic. But uh, I want to shift gears now to deer because I know that's what your where your head's at probably here momentarily when you check those cameras and one of the favorite things I've ever one of one of my favorite stories I've ever heard might be your story about a decoy incident you had a hunt with a decoy where you actually were walking away from a crappy tree stand carrying your decoy back to the truck I want to hear about your yeah. decoy strategy, but first, can you give us like a, a short version of that story and then kind of go into detail about how you typically use decoys to have success? Because I, I love that story and how you seem to be doing pretty well with that tactic too. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because I'm actually standing right next to that deer right now as you're saying <laughs> that I was walking into my archery room. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, um, so what happened was I was I was hunting with a, a friend of mine, um, actually here in Iowa, um, it was before I lived here and I went out and I had had several times where they sent me to tree stands that were definitely less than preferred. Um, some were just hung crooked, some were, <laughs> didn't seem safe to get into. So, um, I had kind of got to the point where I just said, listen, I just want to go somewhere where I can sit and be comfortable for the day you know, just, just, I don't even care if it's a good spot. Just put me in a spot where it's safe to get in the tree and I can sit there for a long period of time. Yeah, didn't you have like, didn't you have seats falling off of tree stands and stuff happening on some of your earlier hunts? Uh, well, it was actually the, the, 
Well, they said they said we'll send you to a stand that anybody can hunt out of it. And he said, a matter of fact, a girl hunted out of it last week. And I said, okay, well, that's fine. <laughs> so I went there, and he kind of told me, you know, you're going to go across this, you're going to go along this CRP field and across this alfalfa field, and then when you get across the alfalfa field, you know, the timber makes a point, and right where that point is, there's a tree stand right in there, and he said, you know, those deer like to come around that point as they're feeding along that alfalfa. So I said, all right, and I also told him, I said, well, you know, based off of what I'm seeing, I really want to take a decoy, too, and that was part of why, you know, we picked this spot, because, um, you know, putting the decoy in areas where they're visible is important, so... You know, I went out there, and it was probably a good half-mile walk or more. So had my, you know, and it's it's November 10th to 15th, somewhere in there. Um, and it's cold, and I've got a ton of clothes on, and I'm going in for the day. So I've got my decoy, camera gear, my bow. You know, I'm I'm loaded down. I'm trying to to walk and carry this plastic decoy and not make noise and you know I literally get out there and I kind of look up and I see this old um this stand up there and he had told me he said it's he said this stand's nice it's one of those APIs has a twister seat on it so I'm just like okay I looked it had a twister seat on it but like it wasn't the round ones that they come with. I could tell it was square, so I thought, well, all right, you know, they improvised. But uh, you know, I got my decoy out, went over the tree, put all my clothes on, uh, you know, went up the tree, kind of got my bow up there, and you know, tied off all my camera gear to the cords, went up the tree, and as I was grabbing the seat to pull myself on the whole seat ripped off in my hand <laughs> and i was just like you've got to be kidding me because then it's just a oh, post <laughs> sitting there brutal. so i'm like looking i'm like okay am i gonna stand the whole you know the whole hunt and so i had just kind of i had had it. it it had been you know because back then i had one week of vacation time at at work and by this point for four days i had had botched hunts because this you know i was at the mercy of someone else's tree stand hanging and i ended up getting out of the tree i was just like that's it i need to just like go take a deep breath or hang my own stand somewhere or something so i just um I kind of grabbed the the deer and I pulled the stakes out and I, you know, laid the deer down. I went over and got my backpack and started to take my gear off again so I wouldn't sweat so bad walking out. And I was just starting to leave. And as I started to leave, I looked up on a tree that was actually right on the edge of that point. And there's like a brand new, perfectly good um api tree stand right there <laughs> so i was like oh i picked the wrong one so i went back and put the decoy back up got dressed again went over the tree and then 
literally as I'm going to get on the tree, I look and there isn't a single tree peg or step or nothing. Like, oh my gosh! Evidently, someone had put that tree stand up and either took their pegs or whatever. So I was just like, <laughs> "You've got to be kidding me!" And this is, you know, this is like middle of the day. Oh, man. So I ended up. This time, I ended up taking my crap off, jamming it in my pack, and I walked up and I literally grabbed the decoy around the waist and just ripped it out of the ground. And I was walking, I was like stomping mad across that alfalfa field with four stakes dangling out of the bottom of a plastic flamboy decoy. So, I mean, they're rattling around and and clunking around and I mean I'm just carrying this thing with like the stakes hanging out of its feet and as I'm going I look over and right in the CRP you know maybe 70 80 yards here's this buck and it's like looking at me and I mean it's looking right at me so and it was big it's you know 22 inches wide it's you know it's 100 mid 150s upper 150s deer wow and I look, I'm like, well, there's a good deer. <laughs> and I turn and just kept walking because I'm like, yeah, that's how, you know, I figured I had stood him up or something. Uh-huh. So I walk here. a couple more steps and then I look back and he's like almost to the edge of the alfalfa just coming right at me. So I stop and I look at him and I can see his ears are pinned back. So I'm like, holy crap, he, you know, he thinks I'm a deer. <laughs> so I Set the I literally set the decoy on the ground, and you know because the stakes were still like through its feet, it wasn't real stable. So I'm like leaning against my shoulder, and I'm digging through my pack, like throwing jackets and shirts out of my pack in order to get figure out where the heck I put my release. So I get in there and I'm like throwing this stuff over my shoulder. I get in there and find my release. I put my release on. I look over the decoy and he's like 50 yards. I mean, like 50 (laughs) yards, just ears pinned back, hairs bristled up. He's posturing, coming in sideways. So I tell myself, you know, you can't, like you need to stay behind the decoy because I'm in my mind, I'm thinking do the same thing as when you're antelope hunting. You know, you stay behind the decoy, even though you are behind it, they don't put two and two together. So I try to draw my bow while I'm behind the decoy. And about the time I get to three quarter draw, I push the decoy and it literally falls straight over and hits the ground. And I should have just ripped my bow back and shot. But I was literally at full draw, and when that thing was going, I let up and, like, threw my bow down and, like, tried to grab it to, like, you know, to, like, not let myself be sitting in the middle of the field as if all this other stuff was making any sense anyway. So then I grabbed the decoy, picked it back up, and the buck then started like slobbering he's licking his nose and now he's like 25 yards coming i mean like he's coming to ram this thing so i took my bow i put it over the top of the decoy i drew back and when i drew back i could only get to about three-quarter full draw and the decoy was just smashed between my string and my
my body, and I could not lean my body in any way to get my bow to full draw. And I lift, you know, and I'm like going through this. And by the time I realize, like, I'm looking down trying to figure out what the string's stuck on. And, and by the time I realize, listen, I'm not going to get this bow to full draw. And there's no way I can, like, redo any of this. So I look up at the deer, and the buck was at 15 yards. He was just literally quartering, like, quartering pretty hard or like quartering to me to broadside, sidestepping in with his head like low to the ground, fully turned, ears pinned back, and I just just raised my release aid right up to the side of my eye and just looked right down my arrow and just let it rip. <laughs> and it freaking stuck him, and he went like, he just literally kind of hop, started hobbling and, went like I don't know maybe 15 yards and then just fell over right there in that field and it was the only time you know normally I don't like it I personally don't like it when I see people on TV that are like screaming when they shoot something (laughs) you know I think a lot of it might might be a production type you know a lot of it could be dramatized but this was legitimate like I just said Oh my God, did you see that? Like, as if anyone was out there. And I was just like screaming, like, thank you, Lord. I can't freaking believe it. I'm like yelling. I'm just like, did anyone see that? Oh, and my yeah, that was it. That was, that was, uh, probably the craziest decoy, um, encounter i've ever been part of yeah. certainly i gotta believe it's it's gotta be right up there towards the craziest decoy encounters or any kind of encounter maybe that anyone's had i mean that's that's crazy that is an absolutely crazy situation now how do you usually pull off a decoy hunt how do you usually i don't think this is your typical setup right <laughs> no no yeah that was more of like a moose like a moose encounter. Uh-huh. Um, so typically what I do is with, and I have, I actually have three designated decoy areas here where I hunt on some of the different places I've got here in Iowa. And what I really look for is I look for an area that allows me to be in cover and also allows the decoy to be in a, a high visibility area with, that is also a high traffic area during the rut. Like, for example, um, one one situation that I'm thinking of is I've actually got this food plot that is, you know, it's just a regular food plot. It's kind of a rectangular shape, two acres on the one long end. And I actually have a decoy set up for both ends of this field. So what I'll wait for is a wind that would put the wind directly into my face, which for this particular field, an east wind, which is fairly uncommon. But um, for this particular, if I do have an east wind when the timing's right, this has been notoriously my best spot because this food plot is built up on a crown. And there's 
on one side of the crown, there's a deep draw that goes into a big cedar thicket. And then on the other side of the crown, there's also another draw that feeds all the way through like a timber system that runs way off through my neighbors and everything like that. So really what's happening is these bucks, when they start covering ground, they're coming up out of these draws and they're just like, they just kind of appear into a food plot. They look around. A lot of times they're not eat, you know, they're not eating. They're just, they'll cross over and they'll go into the next area. You know, you have those spots where you always see bucks just crossing. They're never staying there, but they're crossing. These are really good areas for decoys because you know that there's going to be traffic and you know you have the ability to put it in an area where you're able to to see or the you know the deer are able to see and from there what I do is I really focus on putting the decoys um about 30 yards in front of me with their wind blowing directly towards me and I'll face them facing directly towards me in my tree so what that does is when these bucks will come up and they'll pop into these these open pockets, they'll see that deer, and then what they'll do is they're going to try to get downwind of that decoy. I mean, they're always going to try to get downwind first, and they also really like to approach a decoy at the direction that they're facing. So a lot of times when they come up and they'll see that decoy, and it'll be like, kind of facing you know it'll be like looking directly under my stand into the the timber line or the field that's behind me a lot of times the deer are just going to assume that that decoy has the attention of maybe a bedded doe or something in that fence line or maybe even a doe that's bedded in you know the field behind me and what they'll do is the bucks just always just go right to the edge of the food plot and they'll follow that taller grass along the edge of the food plot and then they'll button hook right around and they'll really utilize the edge of that cover um, and try to split the difference kind of between me and the tree and that decoy. They'll kind of come in right on the outer edge of that, that cover. They feel safe like they can jump in there and and be gone if they don't like something about it. And as they butt hook around you, the entire time they're going to be looking right at that decoy. They're looking at it, and until they hit the wind of that decoy, you have a great opportunity to be able to to make a shot as long as you know that that wind is blowing directly to you. So as long as that, that buck is butt hooking around, you've pretty much got until that that deer gets directly downwind of your decoy um, for you to make your shot. And it's it's worked incredible. Um, you know, I really like to focus on the times of year, um, when the fir- like when the first part of the rut gets going, like where you have one, maybe one or two does that have come into heat. Um, and, you know, it seems like, you know, you maybe see that first doe get bred and every buck in the country's on her. Um, normally right after that things kind of break loose and these bucks are really going to be looking for does and you also find out that during that first part of the rut most food plots are like vacant like does aren't going to come out 
and show themselves because they know they're going to get harassed. So when a buck comes out and sees a doe and it's standing there, they're going to do that same thing. So during the first part of the rut, I'll decoy with a doe. But then once you get into the middle of the rut or then towards the tail end of the rut, I really like having a buck decoy or I like having a buck decoy during the pre-rut you know there's a time where that velvet comes off and right before the scrapes start getting made um, a lot of you know a lot of bucks will start to kind of they'll start to fight a little bit and you know you might be in the woods and start to hear your first fight of the of the of the year and that's a good time to try a buck decoy as well but really the recipe is always get it um, about 30 yards in front of you with it facing you, wind blowing right directly towards you. You want to be in some cover. Um, you know, it's nice to have, you know, a lot of times I like to be towards one end of a food plot or another. That way if deer come in the food plot, um, you know, they can, even if that thing's down there on the end, a lot of times if it's facing out of the food plot, the other animals won't get all freaked out by it if it's just staying there. You know, they don't pay attention. Now, if it's if you're facing away from you and it's looking into the middle of the food plot and stuff comes out, well, everything's just going to start looking right at it. And when it doesn't move, they're going to have a problem with it. So that's kind of why I like to keep it off to the side. And, you know, it might not be as noticeable, but if you have a grunt tube, you can always seem to at least get something to look that way. And, and, and then once they're looking that way, they're going to, they're going to take notice. Yeah. It seems like, you know, decoying is kind of one of those higher risk, higher reward types of moves where it can definitely help be that kind of closing deal that, or that helps connect the dots to finally bring in that buck that might be out of range, but also there's the risk you could spook deer. I mean, if you had to put a percentage on, you know, how often this ends up spooking deer versus helping you, you know, risk versus reward, how would you break it down? Is it, is it like a 50-50 kind of thing, or is it more one way or the other? Well, I can tell you, um, if you're really serious about it, uh, I made an investment years ago in, I made an investment to to buy an actual stuffed decoy. And it has made a huge difference in how it makes or breaks a hunt. For whatever reason, um, if it has hair on it, like if it's a natural, you know, and you can get a mounted deer for about a thousand bucks, and you know, and it's it's double what a, a normal decoy is. Um, but I can tell you if it has hair on it, it's not going to scare anything. Um, they come out, I mean, I've had fawns bed around it, you know, they, it's like, for whatever reason, it's like a totally different world. Now, next in line is going to be my Dave Smith decoy. I've killed a lot of bucks over my Dave Smith decoy. Um, obviously... What's nice about that is it just, I think, the posture of it and the realism of it, you really need to use it as a buck decoy more so than a doe because of the position of it. 
but um, it is plastic, so it's much easier to travel with. I mean, you can jam it, you can put it in the back of your truck and pile a bunch of other gear around it, and if it's raining, you're fine, or if you take it through a real wet field, you know, or if you want to lay it down and leave it overnight, um, that's kind of the advantage. See, what I have is I've actually got, like I said, I've got three designated decoy spots and over the years I've acquired different decoys I tried different ones and what I do is like on some of my areas where I know I'm really going to focus on using a buck decoy my Dave Smith decoy just stays there because you know it I think your scent is off of it after a few days of being outside and it's just kind of laid down in a spot and has um you know kind of have has a cover over it to where it's not um, really exposed, but then I can just go to that stand, put it up, and it's ready to go. It doesn't matter if it gets rained on. It's just much more durable and, and friendly, you know, for use, whereas the stuffed ones, they're, you know, it's like having a deer mount. You know, you can't just beat it around. You have to, you really have to be careful with it. So, but I can tell you that those two are probably among the best. Now, that decoy story that I told you earlier was with a flambeau, uh, flambeau decoy, um, and it was a buck decoy. And like I said, I think that was um, for sure late in the second week um, of November. So, you know, I've I've had good luck with them. I mean, if you're... If you're a specific trophy buck hunter, um, and I'm talking, you know, like that that buck I killed is um, could be one of the bigger bucks. Well, no, I, I actually I shot a little bit bigger deer than that off the Dave Smith decoy, um, but for the most part, if you're if you're really a, a super mature buck hunter specifically, then sometimes, you know, you might have trouble fooling a seven-year-old. You know, a lot of those seven-year-old bucks, they're just, they're not going to play those kinds of games for the girls. Yeah. But, you know, you're talking, you know, for the longest time and even now, you know, if the right three-and-a-half-year-old comes by me, I shoot it. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> Hard to pass I'm not this. a I'm not a year five, year six, year seven only guy. That's just me. Um, you know, I, there's there's certain deer that I that I just like, and you know, if I do a lot of homework and I'm doing it, and I I don't own enough property to where I can tell you that if I pass that deer up, he's going to be there next year. Um, I you know I, I can tell you those kinds of deer, three and four year old deer, you can certainly kill over a decoy but i think once you get to six and seven year old bucks they're just way more likely to have their designated little areas where they where they kind of always go round up their doe they take them there and then they kind of protect their little area they kind of you know do their little bullfighting technique they'll get that doe in the middle of their little area that they like and then they kind of just you know protect other bucks from coming within that area and then a lot of the more mature does over the years of being with that local buck, they kind of know that routine, 
you know, I've had a few, uh, I've had a few different bucks that I've encountered that I've really always tried to get, but during the rut, they're just kind of always in those little pockets where they're kind of in the middle of nothing, but they're there all the time. And it just seems like the only time they're not in those areas where they can kind of see everything, hear everything, um, then they're, they're on their feet. They kind of make their pass through the timber and, you know, they'll make a run through a place. And as soon as they find a doe, they'll kind of herd her out and try to get her out in that open. Um, so those bucks are just a lot tougher for this, but I can certainly tell you if you're just a person that just loves hunting and shooting and having action, you can certainly have action. My best day ever, um, was actually in that field that I talked about, um, a rectangular field. It was the first time I ever hunted it. I went in with a decoy. Um, I knew that I had an east wind, which kind of sucked. Um, but I knew I'm like, okay, that's an actually, it's a good decoy spot. I got an east wind. There's a stand there. I'm not gonna, I didn't have any, t- any like, uh, stands in the timber or any thick stuff for an east wind. This, my stand was actually on a fence line, which normally would kind of stink, but I knew that it was a crossover area. So I kind of thought, well, I'm going to get my decoy there, face it. Bucks aren't going to use this fence line to travel, but if they hit this field, they're probably going to swing. They'll use the fence line to swing under downwind of this decoy and let's see how it works. And I remember I decoyed 22 bucks in one day. And I'm talking wow. 22 bucks. There was a hot doe that was just zip, zipping up and over that field constantly. And every time a new buck would come up, you know, especially when I think there was one buck fighting off several smaller bucks. So as all that would happen, as soon as the deer would kind of follow that old scent trail of hers, they'd come into the field and then all of a sudden they'd look and boom, there's a buck staring into the fence line. So they're just assuming okay, that doe's right over there, and they just come right in, read the tech. I mean, it'd be perfect. Every one of them worked the edge of the field, came in, ended up broadside, 15 yards right underneath me, and then as soon as they'd hit the wind of the decoy, they'd, you know, the younger bucks would kind of look around like, eh, what's going on? The more mature bucks, as soon as they hit the downwind, they're gone. But yeah. there was always that time where you could have got a shot because of the layout. Wow. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but as I've always understood it and seen from some of my own experiences too, it seems like this is one of those types of tactics that's going to work better in areas of relatively lower hunting pressure with a better age structure of mature bucks. Like this could work in a property in Iowa, Kansas, Illinois, where there's a lot of older deer and a little bit fewer hunters, but maybe upstate New York or wherever where there's tons of guys and lots of young bucks, this is going to be something that's not going to work as well. That's what I've seen. Are you, have you heard or seen similar things? Well, I think it a lot of that comes down to, you know, what your local deer herd is experiencing. You know, if, if, if a lot of people are putting decoys out, and especially people that are getting in the habit of, like, aggressively calling at deer, um, and then the deer come over and realize, okay, well, the decoy stinks and something's not right, then, yeah, I mean, they they start to get educated and, and kind of crazy. But I can tell you that 
younger deer are going to fall fall for this way more often than mature deer. So, I mean, if you're in Pennsylvania and you're totally cool shooting a four-corn, I mean, this is like, you know, four-corns, the basket racks, it's a guarantee. You know, it. now you have to, the more mature deer, three, four years old, the timing needs to be right, you know. They need to be in the mood for fighting, sniffing, or fighting again. You know, that's that's the mood that a mature deer will be in. Now, a lot of the younger deer, at least in my experience, is a lot of deer come to deer. And if a younger buck hasn't experienced a decoy yet, you're more you're way more likely to have them come in and smell it and kind of run off and then look back at it like, what the hell? And, yeah, I think stinks like a person, but looks like a deer. And then they may go back. I mean, that's what I found. Um, you know, another thing is I really like to, uh, I really like to get fresh hawks. You know, if you can, if if you do shoot a doe like right during the peak of the rut, you know, before you get those things bloody or tainted, cut those hawks off, put them in a bag, and I normally just kind of, I normally set them just use my gloves but set them right on the forehead of uh of my decoy and that works really really good and i use buck ones too if a buddy of mine shoots a buck during the rut i'll be like hey can i get those hawks and i'll cut the hawks off because obviously um you know obviously it, it really really helps if you leave a decoy out where it's getting a lot of um, unnatural scent washed off it naturally and then you are able to set it up and put those on there it makes a huge difference for how long the deer sit there and think about it and I've had times where even mature you know three-year-old deer I've seen them go up and like sniff the decoy's forehead like god dang dude your forehead smells like piss you know <laughs> and, and kind of back up and look at them and be like wait what have you been that? doing yeah, was that his forehead? Yeah, let me go in again and smell it. I mean, um, but certain areas, you know, like I said, I grew up, I grew up in the Mississippi Delta, so uh, redneck heaven. It, it's you know, you you hunt anywhere from there over to Alabama. It's you know, there's deer that are that are just so smart they don't even see daylight oh, because. Yeah. They've grown up having rednecks chase them around. Um, but I can tell you I've had success in Mississippi. Um, I've had success all through the Midwest um, with the decoy. And I don't know. I've had I've had success. You know, I wear a decoy hat when I elk hunt. I wear one when I mule deer hunt. And I'm, I'm a believer in it, you know. I think... If you're if the decoy is not moving and a mature doe comes out, you're gonna wish you you were able to shoot that doe. <laughs> <laughs> They're always the ones that get you in trouble. <laughs> I can agree. Yeah, with that. but I can tell you, mature doe. If you have a fully stuffed decoy, I've had mature doe. I I've got actually I, last year I took video. I had 14 does within 10 yards of my stuffed decoy last year. 
Um, I had put a decoy out, I think, around October 25th, and all the does came out, fed all the way around the decoy, 360 degrees. A couple fawn, like stray fawns, came into the field later on, and I think two or three of them ended up bedding down right underneath it. So that that makes a world of a difference. If it would have been like a fully erect, alert-looking plastic one, then that wouldn't have gone over too good. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, one quick clarifying question. When you were mentioning you're cutting off the hocks on a deer, you're talking about the tarsal glands, right? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that, that yep. gland on the back of the leg just for anyone who wasn't following there. And then one more piece on the on the uh, decoying thing. Is there any certain type of calling that you like to pair with a decoy? Do you rattle a lot when you've got the decoy out there, or uh, are you a little more aggressive or passive with that type of thing? Um, I'll, I will... I will rattle, um, especially if I know nothing can see me. I'm not a big, like if, if it's a buck, I for sure want to, to get the attention of, I'll rat. If I ever see a deer that I, you know, if a decent deer, but one I will not shoot comes up into that field and happens to walk across and not look at the decoy, there's no way I would grunt at it or rattle to like get it to come over to to watch it because you're just that's what makes your decoying in your area way because they will start to associate your rattle patterns with that decoy especially if they come in and smell human association with the decoy so ideally you really want something to come in that's that's what you really want to shoot um but yeah i do during the rut I I always have my horns in a, in a in a grunt tube. I mean, probably every hour, if it's um, if it's calm and I'm not I haven't seen a deer and I don't think a deer is within earshot of me, um, I will rattle. You know, I do. I'm a big advocate of rattling. But if I know deer are close by and certainly deer that aren't relative to me. I just don't want to bring attention to myself and don't want to end up freaking some stuff out um, to where they, you know, if they end up blowing through, blowing out of there, you really don't know what they'll pick up on their way out. So if there's deer around me or does bedded around me, as much as I want to rattle or something like that, I'll just hold off and kind of save it for a lull when nothing's, nothing's around. Nice. I think that all that seems in line with with a lot of the things we've heard from other folks, and uh, it's it certainly sounds like, I mean, I mean, it certainly is true that this type of thing ends up with an exciting hunt one way or the other. You definitely have a little more action and something to look at. I don't know about you, John. One thing that I do a lot whenever I use a decoy is I'll have that decoy out there, and then I'm sitting for an hour or two, and I'm looking at my phone or something. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I see a buck out of the corner of my eye. I jerk my head up, and my heart jumps out of my chest. And then I realize it's my decoy. <laughs> it's happened oh, yeah. to me so many times. Yep, I agree. It's happened to me a ton as well. I'm a, I'm a big, um, I'm a big believer in sitting all day. So there's, there's definitely the time where I, I'm catching a cat nap. And I'll kind of 
realize I'm sleeping and kind of wake up and then, yeah, times where you kind of forgot that that decoys are, you're like, whoa, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. And, uh, but there's also been times where I've kind of nodded off and opened my eyes and there's just something right there, like on it, you know, just nose, nose on it. That's awesome. I, uh, I, I've yet to kill one on a decoy, but, uh, I'm hoping it's going to happen here soon. Um, uh, I love the uh, kind of the setup you've described here and, and how you put all these pieces together. It makes a lot of sense to me. So, uh, I think it's something that could work for a lot of people. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. And there's, there's so much more I really wanted to talk to you about, but I know I've taken a lot of your time already and you've got to get, you gotta go check those pictures. So John, thank you. <laughs> thank you for taking all this time and chatting through these things with us. If, if people want to learn more from you and there's a lot to learn, I think, especially, you know, what we were talking about at the beginning in relation to, bow hunt or archery issues you know where can they go to watch a show listen to your podcast all that stuff um so yeah they can they can go if they want to listen to the podcast you can either look up the knock on podcast on podbean and it's n-o-c-k-o-n um, not don't use a k some people are using a k but uh yeah it's n-o-c-k um knock on podcast and um, otherwise, for Facebook, it would be Knock On TV for the Facebook page, um, or my Instagram account would also be Knock On TV. Otherwise, the YouTube channel is Knock On Archery. Um, and certainly, check out the the if you follow the Knock On Facebook page. Then right now, I'm doing a lot of um, or starting to do a lot of live feeds with. Um, if I'm actually in the yard working on um, someone's bow or working on something particular, or sometimes even if I'm with a student, I may just decide to go live, um, and you'll get a notification to see that. And then, um, you know, a lot of people are really finding that helpful because a lot of these things that I talk about, they're kind of difficult to understand um, without seeing it. So it allows me to to kind of um, show you a little bit better um, what it's like. So awesome! I saw you doing one uh, a little while back when you were grilling up some elk, and then also talking about some of the different things, and that was pretty cool. So definitely yep. recommend people check that stuff out. Well, John. Uh, All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, hopefully. We'll see some stories from you this fall with uh, another big buck down under the decoy or something like that. Yeah, I hope so, too. Awesome. Well, uh, be sure, everyone, to check out what John just mentioned on YouTube, Facebook, the website, Instagram, and all that. And uh, good luck this season, John. All right, man. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. Absolutely. All right. So there you have it, another episode of the Wired Hunt podcast. But a few quick reminders before we let you go. First, if you haven't yet, please take a couple quick minutes to leave us a rating or review on iTunes. It makes a big difference. It doesn't take very long, and we would really appreciate it. Secondly, our Wired to Hunt gear store was shut down for the summer, but it's back up online now. So if you want a Wired to Hunt hat, shirt, or decal, visit wiredtohunt.com shop and rock that Wired to Hunt gear. And finally, we need to thank our partners who help make this podcast possible. So thank you to Sitka Gear, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonix, Yeti, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, 
thank you all for joining us today. Hopefully this one got you pumped to get the bow out and maybe test some decoying this fall. And of course, I hope you'll stay wired to hunt. Hey, everybody knows Weber grills. I've been using Weber grills my whole life and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood pellet grill. Now with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.